Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Friday, June 17th, 2022, and today will be better than yesterday. I'm Buster Only, working from my home in New York. Taylor Schwenk is working from his home studio, his new home studio in the foothills of Connecticut. And Sarah Abbott is working from Nebraska. And I see you, Sarah, on Zoom. You're in a car. You're driving someplace. I'm assuming it's the College World Series. Actually, it's an appointment, but tonight my parents are going to the Notre Dame game and I'm going tomorrow. So good to be back home. Nice. Well, we're going to be talking with Carl Ravitch coming up. He's actually out in Nebraska getting ready for broadcasting the College World Series. And we'll also be talking about Jose Altuve and whether or not he's going to be a Hall of Famer. Yesterday, the Rangers, the Tigers, and the Rangers are trailing 1-0 in the top of the ninth inning. And this happened. Here's the pitch. Swing and a ball hit inside the bag at first and down the line. Seager scores. Culberson around third is in to score. Being waved home is low. Here's the relay throw. Nathaniel slides and scores. Duran goes to third. And the Rangers lead 3-1. to one. Yep, that sound from 105.3. The fan Ranger players are going crazy. And for the Tigers, the hits just keep on coming. The Mariners and Jesse Winker agreed to a two-year deal. This way they avoided arbitration. Winker is now signed through the 2023 season. So that was good news for the Mariners. Later in the day, it got bad. Here was Mike Trout. Here's the next pitch from Kirby, and Trout swings at that one, lifts it in the air. That ball's hit well out into right center field. It's out by the wall, and that ball is gone. Mike Trout has homered. Goes the opposite way. Trout has had tremendous success against the Mariners in his career. That's the 48th homer he's hit against them. And Mike Trout has given the Angels the lead here in the third inning. It's now 2-0. And later in the game, he would hit another homer. And the Angels would win 4-1. Shohei Otani was outstanding. The Mariners are 28-36. and Hot Ticket is brought to you by Vivid Seats, where you earn rewards with every purchase. Vivid Seats Rewards is your ticket to more tickets. Vivid Seats, life happens live. The best play of the night was made by a kid with a glove at the Nationals game. Kid was probably eight or nine years old. Give a listen to this. Look at that catch by that young fan down there. I told you, man. Fans are bringing the gloves tonight. Came to play. That was a heck of a play. Let's check this out again. Give this young fan some love. Oh, yeah. Had it the whole way. Kelly, you know what I loved about the, the replay of that? Did you see his friends going crazy when the kid made the catch? Oh, my God. They were like in a little frenzy, like all four or five of them just jumping up and down, waving their arms. It was pure joy. It was. If, if you haven't seen it, and of course on a podcast, I'm not going to do it, uh, give it full justice. Uh, if you get a chance, uh, find that uh, that video because it is a ton of fun. The Mets played the Brewers last night, and both teams lost their starting pitches along the way. Tyler McGill left his start with right shoulder discomfort, and then the Brewers suffered another potential blow to its depleted rotation. His left-hander Aaron Ashby had to leave with left forearm tightness. We're going to get more information about that, of course, later today. Now, the score of this game was 4-all going to the bottom of the eighth inning, and this happened for the Mets. 
And Plummer grounds one toward the hole, cut off by Telez, gets the out at second, and oh. no chance for the relay, and oh. the Mets take the lead. They barely got the out at second as Adamas backed into the bag as they get the force on Guillaume, but Marte comes home with the lead run, and the Mets lead it 5-4. to four. Why do you have the infield in, and yeah. Telez goes for two? He's got no chance to throw out Marte, well, though. So, yeah. oh. On this ball? To his right. Let's see. Yes, he does. Marte didn't break. Marte never broke. So maybe that's oh, why he made the play a second. Why he oh. made the play at second. What a crazy play. You heard Keith Hernandez, who is one of the best defensive first basemen in the history of baseball, being critical of Roddy Telez. They had the infield in. They had a runner at third base. The runner at third didn't run. And yet somehow he scored. So the Mets took a lead there at five to four. And Keith Hernandez wasn't done losing his mind based on what happened in this game. The Brewers rallied against Edwin Diaz. Line the other way, and that's going to go fair along the line. On his way to third is Renfro, heading for second is Taylor. Now trying to score is Renfro, the throw by Alonzo. Nino with the tag, and he's out! Oh, man. Renfro trying to score all the way from first on the soft double by Taylor. Gets thrown out at the plate. The relay by Alonzo to Nito, who got the tag down for the second out in the ninth. What a brutal choice by the third base coach. I'm sorry. That was, you got second and third, one out. Oh, my. This is a little... Flick, inside out, down the line. The ball's too close to send him here. Nice relay by Pete, and that is just, you can't. It's second and third one out. With Yelich coming up. Oh, my. Brewers are challenging the call. Yep, and they would lose that challenge. Uh, That was Jason Lane, third base coach for the Brewers. It was not close at home plate. Uh, the potential tying run cut down. And what uh, Keith was saying is, is that if they hadn't sent the runner, they would have had second and third and one out with Yelich coming to the plate. So the Mets win that game. The Yankees played the Rays. They were tied one all. Bottom of the ninth inning, and this happened. The 2-1. High fly ball. Deep right center. There it goes. See ya. Seventh heaven. They've won their seventh in a row as they sweep the Rays right out of the Bronx. Michael Kay on the Yes Network. The Yankees are 47 and 16. They're on a pace to win 120 games. Taylor, what else you got? Buster, the Golden State Warriors are your 2022 NBA champions. And last night, Brian Windhorst and Zach Lowe were on the floor of TD Garden following game six. The guys discussed the level of difficulty for the Golden State Warriors to win this title. Draymond showing up big time. The Warriors savoring this one. This being the crowning moment of Steph Curry's career. Boston looking totally discombobulated. Tatum struggling down the stretch. And how many times Clay has said, holy cannoli before. It's a great podcast. I'm saying that I haven't listened to it yet, but I will be listening to this weekend because uh, that's just a great show that these guys are doing over there. So that's the Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorse and the Low Post with Zach Lowe. You can find those shows wherever you listen to podcasts. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. 
So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's Code Baseball. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. All aboard. It's the Rabbit Train with Carl Rabbit. Rabbit play-by-play man on Sunday Night Baseball. And this Sunday will be in Houston for White Sox and Astros. But at the moment, Rabbit, the Rabbit Train is parked in Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah, the rabbit train has rolled into the uh, middle of the country. Temperatures up in the 90s. Could hit triple digits soon. But the greatest show on dirt is in town. We've got eight teams wide open College World Series this year. And uh, Eduardo Perez and I will be here until Saturday evening. And we fly to Houston. And uh, we are very fortunate. If you love baseball, this is a great event. You get a chance to go Sunday to do White Sox Astros. You fly back here and you do more of the College World Series. So I'm... Uh, I'm incredibly grateful. We are in a great spot, and we are wall-to-wall baseball. So we'll have the great major leaguers on Sunday and future major leaguers for the next couple of weeks on ESPN. All right, tell me about when it kicks off, and in your eyes, in your mind, uh, you know, who are the teams to watch in this uh, in, in the CWS? So it's pretty cool. I mean, unlike Major League Baseball, where you can kind of identify currently the teams that are that are more than likely going to get into the playoffs and, and really the ones that are more than likely going to end up going deep into the playoffs. This year in college baseball, there was one team that stood above everybody else. That was the Tennessee Volunteers. They went into their Super Regional. They had won 58 of the 65 games they played. They were the prohibitive number one. And Notre Dame, a school famous for its knocking off of teams, uh, whether it's whether it's their football team in a shocker, whether it's uh, Bill Walton's team losing to Notre Dame and Digger Phelps, they knocked Tennessee out of the whole thing. Um, so we got eight teams here, some huge brand names like Stanford, like Notre Dame, Texas A&M, Oklahoma is back. You know, we, we had a chance yesterday to talk with the uh, assistant coach for Oklahoma, who you'll, you'll know very well, Reggie Willits, who, of course, was the first base coach for the Yankees last year. Yep. Got a couple of uh, children and wanted to go back home and live in Oklahoma and watch them grow up and play baseball. He has, he has turned this team around. He brought with him this aggressive approach. They've stolen 142 bases this year. And Reggie Willett's fingerprints are all over Oklahoma, and it's the first time they've been here since since 2010. Um there's just there's Ole Miss. There's a Sonny Deshera who very well could play in the major leagues next year. There's just a lot. It's it's pretty standard. I would say that this is a more offensive year than we're used to seeing. 
Um, I mean, it hit over 400 home runs through the regionals and super regionals. And even though what is now, um, instead of it being TD Ameritrade, it's Charles Schwab Field. They bought TD Ameritrade. The ball, I think, is still going to fly out of here. So it should be an exciting uh, week and a half in Omaha with uh, offense. You know, in your conversation with Reggie, I'm curious about, you know, what uh, background he gave, uh, what perspective he gave on that, you know, approach to playing games, which is so different than what we see, you know, whether it's Major League Baseball, yeah. Minor League yep. Baseball, college, and that is to be so aggressive on the basis. Exactly. No, and, and we did, I did ask him that. I mean, it does fly in the face of current conventional wisdom, although I don't, it, there seems to be, at least from what I see, somewhat of a, like we're all, the game of baseball at the major league level seems to be shifting a little bit back to occasional small ball. Let's take advantage of the speed that we have. Let's not be afraid to run. Let's not be afraid to put guys in motion. It's hardly a tsunami of that, but it feels like there's a little bit more attention paid to it. And if some of the things that are being discussed, whether it's no shift, et cetera, bigger bases, you know, what, what major league baseball I think is, is after Reggie Willis is certainly brought to this team and all he's doing Buster is, is taking advantage of his, his talent level that he's got here. And he didn't even know that when he took the job, but little things, one of the, you know, one of the things we all know about major league baseball, they're so attentive to the smallest detail and whether it's edgetronics or rap soda or pitchers literally moving their, their two fingers, an eighth of an inch on a baseball to increase spin rate and horizontal movement. He's that way with base running. He's that way with, here's how you have to do this with regard to your secondary lead. Here's what you need to pick up on as you round second base and go to third. You know, in a sense, every millisecond counts, and they've taken advantage of it. And that's, you know, we have, that's the first game today. It's Oklahoma and A&M. There's a whole heck of a lot of pressure on a kid that's likely to be drafted in Troy Clonch, who's the catcher for Texas A&M to try to slow down this Oklahoma running game. So it's really an attention to detail and it's taking advantage of, of what we have on our team, which is get on base, play small ball and run. Yeah. Nestor, you know, people have talked about Nestor Cortez this year and and how this guy came out of left field. And I think you and I have had this conversation about how all of a sudden those guys who have, you know, can change speeds and pitch from different angles. Those guys have become the outlier, right? Because everyone now yeah. throws 100 miles an hour and hitters ramp up to, to face velocity. And I'm sure that, you know, Oklahoma probably benefits from the fact that teams don't see, you know, clubs that are super aggressive on the bases right now. And so when you actually yep. play a team like that, it's probably unnerving. It's probably something that completely takes you out of your element. So I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, watching Buster, that game. You are 100% correct. Uh, you're absolutely right. They are the outlier, Oklahoma, in this event because of all the power, because of all the home runs. This isn't like this is an SEC invitational. I mean, there are four teams here. Oklahoma and Texas are moving into the SEC in a couple of years. You would have had six SEC teams here uh, if this were 2025. And conceivably, if Tennessee didn't get upset, you'd have seven of the eight teams being from the SEC, which of course you're familiar with, with Vanderbilt. Um, That's a little bit of a problem to be frank with you in college baseball. We have an SEC tournament every year. Uh, We don't want to have two. So the other conferences have got to figure out a way to compete. 
and again, not, not to muddy the waters, but the NIL and baseball scholarships, all of those things in the next couple of months, uh, certainly the scholarship concept with the SEC is going to change dramatically. And if only the SEC or one or two conferences adopt the idea that we're going to go from 11.7 scholarships to 25, will immediately change the landscape. And if it's just the SEC, you could go from the SEC tournament in Hoover, Alabama, to another SEC tournament in Omaha, Nebraska. And that's not great. You know, and I love the SEC, but that wouldn't be great for college baseball. All right, here's the black and gold in me speaking. I'm not brokenhearted that Tennessee is not in this particular <laughs> tournament that you'll be broadcasting here in the days ahead, but we'll move past that. Uh, let's talk about something that happened with the Red Sox yesterday before their game. Uh, Chris Sale threw to hitters in a simulated game, 32 pitches. And, Carl, based on the video I saw, he looked absolutely fantastic. Here's Alex Cora right after that was done. Good, really good. Um, 94, 95, good changeup. I think that's the difference between last year and this year. Um, he was a two-pitch pitcher for a month and a half. And uh, this year, obviously, been that far away from surgery now, this will play. We were just talking about it um, in the offseason, him and Nick, they actually work on it. And uh, he threw a few today. And the feedback from Rob and uh, the hitters is a good one. So I don't know what's next. Uh, we'll, we'll sit down today and then map it out. But, uh, you know, that's, that was a lot better than last year. And last year he was really good. So like I said yesterday, we just got to be patient. I know everybody's excited. Uh, never seen a live VP with so much coverage uh, in, in the years I've been here. But obviously... Uh, it was cool. It was good to see. It's always good to have him around. It's always good to see him on the mound, and uh, we know he's going to contribute. And, Carl, that coverage is justified, I think, because of the potential impact of Chris Sale for the Red Sox. Yeah, in whatever role. And, again, the most important part of that is the idea that there's a third pitch. I mean, the, the changeup. You know, la- last time we saw Chris Sale, his fastball, which we all fell in love with, and he did when he was throwing at 99 miles an hour, uh, is now 94-95. Like, that was the first thing Cora said, 94-95. That, that's who Chris Sale appears as if he's going to be. I'm not sure we're going to see consistent 97-98 to go with it. You know, that horrific slider that he used to throw. But throwing the changeup, you just mentioned it. Um, the, the number of pitches that Nestor Cortez can throw is what makes Nestor Cortez, you know, so evil. And he throws it from different angles. You know, Chris Sale throws it from an angle that not many left-handed batters, let alone righties, ever see. And if you can mix a changeup in with that fastball and slider, it's a game-changer. Look, the Red Sox have had good things happen to them, certainly recently. Nick Pavetta has pitched really well. Michael Walker has been a revelation. Uh, The idea that you're going to add Chris Sale to a bullpen, if that's where he's going, that has has been kind of an uncertainty as to who is going to pitch where. The, the, The questions around Tanner Houck and Garrett Whitlock all year long, if adding Chris Sale can somehow resolve some of those, that would be a huge step for a team that I think probably mirrored what most people thought they would be when they were struggling as opposed to what they are doing now, which is right and get themselves right in the thick of a, of a pennant race, or at least, at least a playoff position with the wild cards. 
Yeah, and if you look at the standings, you're feeling pretty good if you're the Red Sox, despite that terrible start about potentially making the playoffs. I think, Carl, because the polarized nature of the American League this year, you have you know a team like the Yankees on a pace to about 120 games. But on the flip side of that, Oakland is absolutely terrible. Kansas City is terrible. The, the Tigers are a shock to me. You know, the Orioles have gotten better, but that's like a you know a, their grade going from an F to a D. You know they're at a pace to win uh, fewer than seventy games. The Mariners have been a big disappointment. So as you sit here today, uh, the wild card teams would be the Blue Jays, the Tampa Bay Rays, and the Cleveland Guardians. The Red Sox are just a half game behind the Guardians, and you and I both know. It's not like Cleveland's going to go out in midseason and make a bunch of huge deals. Uh, the White right. Sox sitting two and a half games behind the Red Sox for that, uh, you know, in that wild card race. It's an interesting um, look at that at those teams because I think if you if you take the names and you're going to add Chris Sale to the Red Sox, uh, you would you would probably think that the Red Sox and White Sox are going to be the two teams uh, that would assure themselves of a playoff. I mean, Red Sox just went 24 and 10, and the names Devers, Bogarts, and JD Martinez carried them. But the offense, thanks to the other six guys in the lineup, started to click a little bit. Um, there is some experience there, obviously, with Sale and with Pavetta and Walker that that they would be the team that that you would think would have a better chance to get in than the others. But, but this is, this is same old story in the American league and certainly the American league East. I know we're talking wild card, but the Rays are the Rays are the Rays. And I'm, I think a lot of people forget they're doing this without their best pitcher in Tyler glass now all, all year. They, they've haven't had him. Um, yeah. I, I, the, there is, there is the really bad teams that you can take advantage of. And the difference between the Yankees this year and the Yankees last year is they've hammered the Orioles. It's, it's doing it this year. So yeah, I think the Red Sox should feel really good about themselves and Boston sports fans need a little, you know, a little towel to, to cry in or at least the sunshine on the horizon because the Celtics game last night was an abject disaster for them. And they were reminded that the greatest player uh, in the NBA now can beat a really good team. And he did that. So now you turn the page. I mean, it is officially baseball season when the when the NBA is over. The NHL is in a Stanley Cup playoffs. Chris Sale on the horizon, the wild card expansion. People will pay more attention. I mentioned that this Sunday we've got the White Sox against the Astros. And, and Carl, as we've been preparing this week for that broadcast, you know, I thought about the, the notion that the Astros, uh, they, they've had this success despite massive turnover. Right. <laughs> when you think right. about big names moving on, you know, you start at the top. Jeff Luno, uh, Lunau goes out. You know, he's suspended, uh, you know, fired by the Astros. You know, the architect of, of what they built, he's gone and James Click moves in. Uh, Brent Strong, you know, tremendous pitching coach for that team. He moves on and he goes to the Arizona Diamondbacks. No problem. They've absorbed that uh, and, they, and they plowed forward. A.J. Hinch, terrific manager. You know, he gets suspended. He gets fired. Dusty Baker steps in. Uh, you saw Carlos Correa leave. You know, Jeremy Payne came in to play shortstop this year. He's been absolutely terrific. Uh, you look in the outfield, they lose George Springer. Well, Kyle Tucker emerges as a star. And as we sit here today, Carl, the Astros are on a pace to win 100 games. <laughs> so nothing seems to change with this team, even though everything seems to change with this team. Right. So the, Astro- the Astros are to baseball uh, what the Patriots are to the NFL. Now, I understand that Tom Brady and the Patriots – 
I understand they won a lot more Super Bowls, but look, there, there's there's been a bit of a dark side to the Astros, and yet they are consistently good. Um, they're they're the they're sort of the Tampa Bay Rays, but better. They just continuously win. The, the look, the formula there is tremendous. They, they do identify players. They bring in great talent. They have a bigger budget. Uh, Justin Verlander is is a sort of he's not def, he's not defying gravity he defies time he looks better now or as good as he's ever looked um dusty baker steps in and he he's the right guy and i think we all remember you know one of the major reasons dusty was brought in there was damage control how do we find somebody that can get us out of this spin cycle of bad news that we've created but we're in He's done it. Like he's the he was the perfect guy, and then you realize, which you and I and most people in baseball know, the guy can flat out manage. He he's a great communicator. Nothing's going to get by him or his staff um, that would put them at any disadvantage. The Astros the Astros are reliable. You know, we, we do those those graphic the animations before each game. That's what the Astros is all about. It's we have liftoff again. We have no problem. They are, you know, they are in the stratosphere where they've been forever. And yes, many of these stars have left, but Dusty's got supernovas on his team in Kyle Tucker, in Altuve. And, you know, I saw yesterday where Aaron Judge said he's not going to do the home run derby. The guy I want to see in the home run derby is Jordan Alvarez. Like, yep. how good is Jordan Alvarez? And he's in the middle of everything the Astros do. We've seen it for years. He's unbelievable. Um, so the the Astros, to me, are, are as consistently – it's not even good. I mean, they're borderline excellent every year that we've, we've seen them. And I know anytime you mention the Astros and excellence, there are going to be daggers coming at you like, wait a minute, they, they cheated. I, I get I get that they they apparently are not cheating this season and they're still on pace to win a hundred games and they're hardly the only team that ever tried to bend the rules in an effort to win and I think they've they've paid the price that they were required to pay. The guy who's going to wear the mic for us this weekend I'm really excited about this is Jose Altuve. Uh, and I'm sure, Carl, during the course of the broadcast, we'll talk about his Hall of Fame chances because sometime next year he's going to get career hit number 2,000. He's won three batting titles. He won an MVP in 2017. Uh, look, one of the most ridiculous Hall of Fame votes that I ever saw, and I think you'll agree with me on this, when Roberto Alomar didn't get in in his first year of eligibility, I was like, are you kidding me? This is someone who completely changed the way – that middle infielders played. Uh, you know, he was a transcendent talent, and yet he didn't get in first ballot, and you and I know the reason why, because he had that spinning incident at the end of the 1996 season, and I think yep. the voters uh, penalized him by keeping him out in that first year, and I kind of wonder if that's going to be what happens with El Tuve. I, I don't think there's any doubt by the end of his career he's going to have Hall of Fame credentials, but you do wonder if he's going to be the, you know, the first of the Astros players to feel yep. a little bit of historical backlash when his Hall of Fame uh, candidacy comes up. What do you think? It's interesting. Uh, you know, it's a hard one. And by the way, so I the would Hall absolutely of- vote for Altuve. I want to make that clear. Uh, yeah. I would it, vote for him. I would set aside I, all that uh, all that. Uh, I, stuff I, I think the Hall of Fame, the, the Hall of Fame voting for people is so 
foggy and murky and muddy. And this is no longer solely rooted in the performance, obviously on the field and whether people want to argue, well, it's never been, I don't buy that. I think it always has been about the numbers. And now because of what we dealt with, with steroids, et cetera, there's been very little appetite for any of those guys getting in. And now the next sort of layer of that is how do you make the distinction between a team that cheated, got a World Series ring, and World Series rings are one of the considerations as a Hall of Fame voter you have to think about. How much did they win? And now now you're asked to say, okay, well, they won, they cheated. How, how much do you value the ring that he had and in the consideration of all that Jose Altuve has in his resume? So it's it's another layer, and are you willing to say that's different than those that use steroids? And if so, to to what extent is it different? And how much do we detract Jose Altuve from, you know, having somebody beat on a barrel to help them get the pitches? Um, uh, Look, uh, and I don't vote. I really wish I did. But for me, I would take the numbers. And and then the similar argument that the non-analytic folks, Joe Madden, or at least the I'm not all in on analytics have, I'd have to say there's there is an eye test here. Was Jose Altuve one of the greatest second basemen of his generation? Was he uniquely uh, uh, qualified as a hitter that he did things others didn't? Did he play on championship teams like all the answers for me end up being more yes than no? And I would vote for Jose Altuve into the Hall of Fame. But again, the same way that people who vote for Bonds and Clemens are going to get hammered because you you are making a judgment that other people are unwilling to make. I would vote for him, too. I understand there's be a bunch of pushback. But between the numbers, his defense, in, in a lot of ways, who he is as a person, we know how affected he was by the crap that they created for themselves. I, I vote for him, Buster, for, for all those reasons. And yet I don't have a vote. Uh, and of course, everybody who was on that team, who's talked about what happened in 2017, he said Altuve didn't participate. He didn't have any interest in participating. Uh, another yep. part of his uh, hall of fame resume, Carl is going to be his postseason success. There's yep. a chance that Jose Altuve, who's as tall as our friend, Tim Kirkchen is yep. going to end his career as the greatest postseason home run hitter of all time. <laughs> He's got 23 home runs and 79 postseason games. Think about that. Uh, you know, pretty, pretty amazing. So I'm sure, you know, that some of that uh, will probably come up in conversation. Like, you know, who's taller here, Tim Kirkchen, uh, <laughs> during uh, when, when he's wearing the mic. Last one, we got about a minute left. I'm writing a piece on Monday about, you know, if Aaron Judge goes into free agency and one owner with another team takes a serious run at him, who would you say, uh, who do you view as potentially the biggest candidate? You know, I, I've heard this, so I'll throw it out there. I, I tend to agree with it. Um, I think the San Francisco Giants, with their experience with Barry Bonds, uh, I think that they're they're that team that is that would be willing to do that. They recognize the value of, of the great home run hitter. It's an unbelievable uh, fan base. It's a wonderful ballpark. He's from he's from that area. Uh, that that to me would be the team, other than the one that he plays for. And it's hard for me to think that they're going to let that guy get out of there. But look, Buster, one of the things that we've had conversations around here in Omaha um, has been around the the willingness to pay one player 
you know, 35 to $40 million and how one player, certainly in college, it doesn't really resonate like it does at the major league level, but the facts are the same. One player doesn't win World Series. One player doesn't put you uh, into a position to win. We've seen, we just left Anaheim. Mike Trout's the best player that we've ever seen play. They haven't been in the playoffs. You know, they don't. One guy doesn't do it. The Red Sox have had success without Mookie Betts. Throw Mookie Betts out of the Dodgers, he makes them better. But if you were the currently, if you were the Pittsburgh Pirates and gave Mookie Betts $35 million, it doesn't change the fate of the Pittsburgh Pirates until you put other pieces around them. So hard for me to think that the Yankees don't re-sign them. But I, again, I get stuck on one guy doesn't make that big a difference. Now, the Giants are close. They're really good. You add Aaron Judge, you've got a chance to win a World Series. I would say San Francisco. Yeah, and by the way, they have one player, the Giants do, under contract for 2024 and yeah. beyond, and that's yeah. Scalfani at <laughs> $12 million. Another team that I'm kind of wondering and watching, because all you need is one player to, to you know confirm for fans why they're going to this ballpark, the Chicago Cubs, who I know are going to be looking for a center fielder. Yeah, uh, sure. That. You know, that uh, it's going to be interesting. we got a ways to go before it, uh, we dig into that. All right, Carl, uh, have fun at the College World Series, and I will see you over the weekend. That sounds good, Buster. Thank you. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus Chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NexGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Jumping into the numbers. This is Hembo Knows on Baseball Tonight. Hembo is Paul Ambikidi. He's a researcher at ESPN. There's a, a honcho on the show. Get up. He says he's a head honcho. Uh, you know, Hembo, before we got started on the podcast, what Taylor said is, is that your primary responsibility there is to collect Mike Greenberg's dry cleaning. What say you? Well, uh, Taylor, you're, you're oversimplifying my role. There's not only uh, dry cleaning, obviously. There are any number of issues that might arise with his Mercedes-Benz. There might be things that could come up in terms of his uh, dog, Phoebe. So, like, there are any number of things that you neglected to include there as part of my daily responsibilities. But, yes, you did get one of those things right. But this is a multifaceted thing. You should re- reference my LinkedIn page next time you look to take a shot. 
I'm so sorry. And you know what? Honestly, I'm throwing stones from glass houses because I am Buster's personal secretary. I answer all his emails. <laughs> oh, don't even try to go there. Oh, my goodness. Even Hembo's laughing because he knows. But I am writing down some notes here. Paul and Bikini, mm-hmm. dog sitter, car washer. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. So on Monday, got it all. Or at the beginning of next week, I got a story coming out. Uh, about what teams in the upcoming offseason might be interested in Aaron Judge. Because as I wrote in the piece, the old refrain goes, all it takes is one team. Uh, And I think you could come up with a pretty good list. Uh, For example, I was just talking with Carl Ravitch, and I mentioned the Chicago Cubs are really interesting to me. Like, if you want to have that one anchor of your franchise who's going to ensure that, you know, fans are going to come out and do, uh, you know, beer cup snakes – for years to come, Aaron Judge could be that guy. I, you know, made a case for the Red Sox. You can make a case for for the Mets because Steve Cohen doesn't seem to care how much money he spends. Uh, you know, the the San Francisco Giants are a possibility. The Yankees are a possibility, among others. Hembo, what say you in terms of the future of Aaron Judge? Who would you see surprising all of us in the offseason? I don't think that you missed any team that would be obvious. To me, I would still handicap the Yankees as the favorite. They have exclusive negotiating rights until the day that he hits free agency. He's obviously having a season for the ages, and I think there's mutual. there should be mutual interest there, obviously, to um, reach a compromise. But besides the Yankees, I think it's clear that, look, this guy's going to hit free agency in all likelihood. And if you look at other teams that are going to get themselves into the mix, to me, I think the Cubs, which you mentioned off the top, are an excellent option because the Cubs have a lot more financial flexibility than they once did. They are desperately looking for a new face of the franchise. I just don't know if Aaron Judge sort of fits into their timeline when it comes to building. But of course, when they traded for John Lester, they weren't quite there yet either. The second team for me, Buster, would be the San Francisco Giants, who I would describe as sort of a sleeping giant, for lack of a a better term, because they have so much more financial flexibility than most sort of big market teams, you would say, in terms of their future commitments. Aaron Judge is a hitter whose power plays anywhere, even in that place, which is just impossible for right-handed power hitters. I think the San Francisco Giants would probably present the biggest threat aside from the Yankees. Yeah, it's amazing when you look at the payroll flexibility. You sent me a note on this a couple weeks ago. Mm. Uh, The only player under contract, guaranteed contract for 2024, is Anthony (laughs) DiSclefani. I mean, think about that. And you know that that's not some whopper contract. So, they can go in a lot of different directions, and uh, that, that's going to be something to watch. Aaron Judge went to high school 100 miles from Oracle Park. Uh, speaking of Aaron Judge, you believe that, they, that he and the Yankees can own this summer. Why? Well, Buster, you and I both like using pace to sort of put into perspective what players and teams are doing during the season because it really provides the best context. So let's contextualize the ridiculous season Aaron Judge and the Yankees are having, and that's just sort of a roundabout way of answering your question. So there have been 46, 50 homer seasons by players in Major League history. There have been 111, 100-win teams in Major League history. And yet, Buster, there have only been five instances in which a player hit 50 home runs on a 100-win team. In 1927 and 28, Babe Ruth did it. In 1961, both Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle did it. And more forgettably, in 1995, actually, Albert Bell did that for Cleveland. Right now, Judge is on pace for 65 homers, and the Yankees are on pace for 120 wins. This is a season for the ages. Now, in terms of why they can sort of own this summer, look, I'm a content producer on ESPN. If you ask me to 
put together the ideal storyline for a baseball season, it would be this. The most popular player in baseball chasing down 60 home runs on the most popular team in baseball. Wait, in a contract year. That's exactly what we have. Buster, the NBA season just ended yesterday. It is my steadfast belief that Aaron Judge can own the year, own the baseball season, can own the summer the way that McGuire and Sosa did in 98, the way that Gwynn did in 94, the way that Maris and Mantle did in 61, the way that Williams and DiMaggio did in 41. It's there for the taking. This is an opportunity for baseball to feast on one of the best storylines we've seen, I think, potentially in the last couple decades. We have the face of the sport, or at least one of them, on the Yankees. These are This, this is an all-time great team and a player having an all-time great season. We just got to cross our fingers and hope he stays healthy. Yeah, you're 100% right. I think August and September will all about be daily updates with Aaron Judge. No mm. question about it. Uh, not so much with Alex Bregman, who's going to be on Sunday Night Baseball this week. He's batting 214, uh, just six home runs, 30 runs scored in OPS of 694. These are shocking numbers for me, Hembo, because, you know, you look at Alex Bregman's swing when he got called up. It's so simple. He was, he's been so good for a lot of years. And now we're seeing him really struggle. What's going on? Yeah, so you emailed me about this earlier in the week, and we uncovered some really interesting stuff on why Alex Bregman isn't the hitter that he once was. Number one, he just is producing too many lazy outs. 55 flyouts this season, Buster. That's second most in the majors. Secondly, fastballs are beating him. He's got a 358 slug right now against them. That number has declined in each of the last three seasons. And lastly, He's just no longer a two-strike threat. His OPS in two-strike counts right now is 514. In 2019, it was 816. It was the best in all of baseball, Buster. Now, the cynical among us might make a joke now about trash can banging, but me, Buster, you know me. I just present the facts. That's exactly right. Uh, and I, <laughs> no, I, 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 and, and look, I, I have a theory about why Bregman is struggling. I think that we got some paralysis by analysis going on, uh, you know, and I, I think that really took root within me last year during the postseason when I had a conversation with Jessica Mendoza. We're going to follow up on that in a little bit, talking mm. about Bregman's struggles. Manny Machado uh, the other day got hit number 1,500 in his career. Is he a Hall of Famer in your mind? I think so. 1,500 hits. He had his 250th home run late last season, Buster. I sent you this note earlier in the week. That made him the 17th player in Major League history to reach both of those thresholds before turning 30. The only other active players to do that, Albert Pujols and Miguel Cabrera. Of course, they're both destined for the Hall of Fame. Among the other 14, 12 are in the Hall of Fame, with the exception of only Alex Rodriguez and Andrew Jones. The only other third baseman on that list are Eddie Matthews and Ron Santo. So Machado will cross the 50-war threshold sometime later this season. He's incredibly durable. He's just 28 games buster over the last eight years. In my judgment, that's a profile of a Hall of Fame player, or at least a Hall of Fame player to be. Let's say you. Uh, oh, yeah, there's no question about it. And I think especially, we talked with Alvin Gonzalez about this yesterday, the changes that Manny has made in how he plays and how he prepares. Mm. You know, I, you know, when he was a young player with the Orioles, I heard that, you know, teammates would nudge him and, hey, this is what we have to do. And, and uh, you know, conversation about the consistency of effort. And now you hear stories about how all in he is, which is great because, as you know, people evolve during their lifetime. And it feels like that he absolutely has done that. Uh, the last couple of weeks you've been begging to talk about 
one of the best players on one of baseball's most disappointing teams. What do you got? Buster, there is a unicorn. I'm describing him as a unicorn in our midst. And his name is Julio Rodriguez, who I am convinced is on the fast track to superstardom. Let's play the pace game again. He leads the major leagues with 17 steals, and he's doing that with a batting line 20% better than the league average. So let's play that out, Buster, over a full season. I went back to 1980 to find rookies that led the league in steals and generated an OPS plus of 120 or higher. Here's the last three to do it. Tim Raines did it in 1981. Ichiro did it in 2001. And Mike Trout did it in 2012. That's the list. Sure, the Mariners are a wildly disappointing bunch, but you can't blame this kid. Obviously, Jared Kelnick was sort of the, and, and Kyle Lewis to a degree, these guys were supposed to form this sort of super outfield. Rodriguez is the only one sort of keeping up his end of the bargain. But that blend of skill that he have is exceedingly rare, and I am thus exceedingly confident that if you look at all the young players across baseball this season sort of taking off, I think his, he might have the most promising, maybe the best profile of all of them to have sort of a superstar-filled 20s, given that age and his ability to hit. Yeah, what we've seen with the, uh, the Blue Jays and the Mariners remind us that you can be a superstar prospect, that that doesn't guarantee anything. For mm. years, we heard about Nate Pearson. Nate Pearson's this, you know, Nate Pearson's that. Nate Pearson throws really hard. And I remember talking with Dan Schulman before the debut of Alec Manoa, and what he told me was, this guy really knows how to pitch. And this guy mm. has presence. And it turned out Alec Manoa is the better of the two. And you mentioned Jared Kelnick. I mean, it just hasn't happened so far. And maybe it will. That can turn around. But it turns out that, the, you know, the, the better player might be Mr. Rodriguez. All right, sir. Thanks for doing this, Hembo. Later, man. Get out of here, Hembo. Right, sick exactly of Hembo. Right. Jessica Mendoza's an analyst for ESPN. Jess, how you doing this week? Oh, doing awesome. Summer has hit. I love it. Yeah, you're going to be out playing with the kids this weekend. I'm going to be in Houston for Astros and White Sox. And one of the players are going to be talking about Jordan Alvarez, who has developed into, you know, one of the best hitters in baseball. Carl was just talking about how he wants to see him in the home run derby because uh, he certainly can put on a show. Tell me what adjustments uh, you've seen with him. Well, it's really, I mean, pitch selection is always the biggest one, right? I mean, Chase percentage has gone down for him because and because of that strikeout percentage has gone down walks have gone up but specifically there was always an area as is for most hitters okay this is where i can get you out for your down you're down alvarez it's been up in the zone and when you look at his last two years especially leading into the postseason last year if you look up in the zone, especially slugging percentage, like he might still be making contact with that pitch, but he was having a hard time driving anything that was at the top of the strike zone. It absolutely changed heading into October and then coming into this year. We're talking like numbers, like he had a, you know, 215 batting average. Now it's at 444. The slug has absolutely doubled um, in that same category. And for him, it's been an approach of understanding what pitches he can hit, what to lay off of, but also being able to understand sequencing. And Buster, like you know this, and you've seen and heard pitchers and, you know, hitters talk about, you know, what pitch can follow and patterns that you start to pick up on. And Jordan Alvarez, I mean, we forget how young he still is. I mean, he's just been such a pure hitter and so strong, but now he's being able to really understand the game and how teams are throwing him. And it's pretty cool to be able to see, especially this season. So he's thriving. 
Alex Bregman is not. We talked to Paul Mbikides about this. Uh, you know, Bregman hitting 214. He's got an OPS of 694. As Hembo detailed, uh, he's getting the ball in the air. He's not doing much with it. He's not doing that much with fastballs. And what really jumped out to me is I looked at the numbers. It really feels like that he's caught in between. And I know you and I talked during the postseason last year about paralysis by analysis sometimes with Alex, because you talk to Astros people and they talk about all the batting practice that he takes. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, he cares so much. I mean, this is the the kid back at LSU that would stay after practice for hours and hours just taking ground balls when he was a shortstop and just trying to almost overwork to get through things because he wants it so bad. And unfortunate part about hitting is just that you have to be able to almost just completely eliminate all of that. Sometimes it's better to stay out of the cage, to stay out of all the stats and the numbers and the things you can do. And Alex Bregman just doesn't work like that. If he's not doing where he feels like the the ability that he can be at, which I mean, his expectations for himself are even higher than when, when he's even doing well, he feels like, okay, but there's still so much more I could be doing that. He's the kid that is there out there early. He's there, you know, extra batting practice, like you said, but he's also someone that will analyze video numbers, all the things that players have access to. I feel like it only hurts him because he is such a, a great talent when he's able to just see the ball, hit the ball, but it's so hard for his own mind because it gets in his way. Now he wears number two, uh, as you know, because he was the second pick in the 2015 draft. And he was a little chapped about that. The guy who was number one in that draft was Dansby Swanson, Vanderbilt guy. Uh, and in the 45 games since April 28th, Dansby Swanson is batting 335, 397 on base, 547 slugging. And I was looking just today at some of the underlying analytics about him. It's clear that he's hitting the ball where it's pitched more, uh, highest rate of his career, taking the ball the opposite field. But I also thought about a, a conversation I had with him in, uh, at the outset of spring training uh, where, you know, I said to him, you always do well in late inning situations, like his numbers in his career uh, from the seventh inning on are always better, have always been better coming into this year than his numbers in the first six innings. And he talked about how he worked with a, uh, you know, a mental coach during the offseason to talk about that. Like, how do I get what I do in the, the last few innings and under pressure and in these big spots earlier in the game? And how do you make that translate as you know, he got off to a terrible start this year, but yeah. he's been crushing it as he moves along. And, oh, by the way, free agent at year's end. Like, he is setting himself up so well. Yeah, well, and that's, I mean, that's been Dansby throughout his career. I mean, he's had these peaks and valleys. And, I mean, even when he was first with the Atlanta Braves organization, when he was traded from the Diamondbacks, as you mentioned, I mean, just the, he was on every billboard. I mean, it was like, Plus, he's a Georgia kid. He's from the area. I mean, the pressure that he had and talked about how he was able to manage through that because he was honestly flat out awful when he was first in Atlanta because of all of that pressure. And so something, and I'm proud of him of understanding. We just talked about it with Bregman. Um, and this is something I wish Alex Bregman would do. Um, ironically, I know you talk about them being the, the same draft class, but also same conference in college, how you know they were always on opposing sides. But something that Dansby has always dealt with is the mental side. But he's understood that 
and gone and got help and been able to understand that just like any muscle you're working out in the gym, you know, all the extra batting practice, everything you do, every athlete, and you know, this buster needs to work on that part of their game, probably more than anything else. Once you get to that level and Dansby is somebody, of course, being, um, you know, married now to a, a professional soccer player and, you know, understanding kind of like the help that she's gotten. I feel like she's been a huge influence on him on the access that they've gotten with the, you know, even us women's national team and, and the stuff that they're not afraid to talk about. Um, and he's really talked about the influence of that too. Yeah. I, in fact, it's funny you say that when I uh, reached out to someone within the Braves organization recently and said, Hey, but what's going on with Dansby? He talked about the influence of his wife, like as someone who, you know, that uh, that relationship helping him uh, to grow as a player. Uh, the Padres are in first place in the National League West. That is a shock. Uh, tell me what you're seeing in them. You know, it's been cool. Like, I mean, in this day and age, right, we, you know, when everyone, you feel like every starting pitcher is going down and, you know, it's just like every team's kind of struggling, especially this season, because, you know, with the, the season starting a little bit wait, later with lockout, we saw injuries early on. And then here are the Padres with a seven man rotation, <laughs> it's like plethora of riches. And we forget, you know, how great and the expectations for this team were last year. Right. And then they completely imploded. And if you were to put at the top of the list, why this implosion happened it started with their starting rotation. I mean, the injuries that went down, the guys that just did not pitch to their capabilities, and now we're seeing the opposite. Of course, the front office went out and got even more dudes to be able to fill those spots, and now with them being more healthy this year, and then, you know, Joe Musgrove having the star. I was just watching him last night and the filth that he was throwing. I think it was his 12th consecutive um, quality start. It's the most, I think, within that organization they've ever had. Um, every start that he's given them and the length. So that's, that's what it's impressed me the most is when we talk about great starting pitching, but when you have a seven man rotation, what we're seeing with the Padres buster is they're, they're going seven innings plus. I mean, that's like almost like knock you over, like fall down. I mean, what, what organizations are having starting pitchers giving you that length? And then of course that's bleeding into the bullpen, giving them more rest. They're not ha having to pitch as many innings. So without Fernando Tatis Jr., in their lineup, we thought that this was a team that definitely would not be in first place, but definitely would not even be contending the way that they are. Um, but to see Manny Machado and, you know, step up into that place. But to me, it's definitely been that starting rotation and shoot a seven man rotation. It's pretty, pretty cool to see. So I'm really curious. Last one for you. I'm really curious about how Fernando Tatis Jr. is going to be uh, brought back into the lineup. You know, as you know, you know, he has uh, been a shortstop through, uh, you know, so much of his career, but he's also had a lot of ups and downs defensively. And the Padres off to this great start. Part of that strength is the shortstops have performed really well. They tied for fourth in the big leagues and defensive runs saved a lot of consistency so far at that spot. And like FTJ, everyone would agree, he's not consistent at shortstop. Now, it's not like Bob Melvin has never had a shortstop who struggled somewhat defensively as you, uh, Marcus Simeon. Yeah. Uh, early in his career, made a lot of errors. But I'm really curious about how the Padres do this. What do you think? I'm not as worried about it just because I feel like this is a talent, obviously, that's 
ridiculous. Um, but you're going to live in whatever to... defense and just say, you know what, the guy. No, no, no. But I think I think Fernando Tassis Jr. has so much upside still defensively. I mean, you see the plays that he can make. It's really sometimes just the simple plays, and that to me is something that can be worked on. It's like he's he's so over the top with the way that he plays the game. So getting to that five six hole and making some of these incredible plays. But sometimes the simplest stuff, I mean, he's throwing the ball into the stands or he's bobbling it. I feel like that stuff with repetition and being able to have the right manager to be able to get with him and understand that. I I think Fernando Tatis Jr. isn't what we've seen defensively, and that's the end-all be-all. I think this is definitely a player that's going to improve defensively. And, I mean, obviously with the bat that he's bringing, of course, you're going to give him the opportunity. A lot of that, uh, you know, a lot of that might be determined by how much you can get on the field to, to practice. I've, you know, had conversations with that coaching staff, and they said that two years ago when he had an improvement defensively, he was out there, you know, working out every day with Bobby Dickerson, you know, who was their infield coach at that time. And then last year with a shoulder issue, he wasn't able to practice as much, and he made a lot more mistakes. So it'll be interesting to see how much he can get on the field uh, after he comes back. All right, Jess, thanks for doing this. Yes, absolutely. I'll probably see you. Um, I'm doing baseball tonight leading into the game. So usually I get to see you from afar as you do the interviews pregame heading into to the game. Awesome. Bleacher Tweets. Alrighty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for a glorious Friday. First up, Ja Tai Joe at Ja Tai Joe 87 writes in, my son just finished a Little League game that he entered as a pinch runner. In his only at bat, he reached first on a strikeout in the dirt. He finished 0 for 1, one strikeout, six stolen bases and two runs. How about just a moment to appreciate the joy of watching Little League? Yeah, so something I'll do from time to time because there's a field not far from my house is I'll just, if I see a game's going on, I'll just pull over the car and, and uh get out and watch a couple of innings because I know exactly what you're talking about. It's fun watching kids play. And we saw that on that Taylor, that uh, the highlight of the kid making the catch at the, at the nationals game last night, mm-hmm. coming full circle here. Let's go to Andrew Campbell at real camp. Drew writes in, Hey Buster, who is baseball? Steph Curry, maybe John Carlo. Cause no one quite hits a ball like big G boy. In terms of changing the sport, I know what you're saying. Uh, I don't know if there's somebody like that, but I'd say the outlier, the guy who is so much different than every, everybody else at his position, I'm going to say Yadier Molina. Like, if you look at the number of stolen base attempts against the St. Louis Cardinals in his time as their catcher, it is like 800 fewer than the next closest team. Like, there's nobody like him in terms of his impact, which is why I've been saying – I think he should be a slam dunk first ballot uh, induction into the hall. Lewis W at E Lou two seven one eight writes in Buster. You and Timmy K are consummate baseball pros, but you're also pros of the English language writing and speaking it. Do either of you have rules or tips for how to write or speak most effectively? Well, Lewis, I'd say this about writing. I, you know, talk to my kids all the time is to get feedback uh, from other people because when you write, uh, you, you can't just look at it from your perspective. You have to absolutely always reflexively look at it from the perspective of the people who are ingesting the information. And if they don't get it and you, and you get, uh, you know, some negative feedback from the folks who are reading it, if they don't understand your point, then you're going to have to make some changes. 
Kyle Benning is going to shut things down for us this week at Kyle underscore Benning writes in. There are currently six teams with winning percentages in the 300s. Which of them finishes the year with the most losses in Major League Baseball? Nationals, Reds, Cubs, A's, Royals or Tigers. And he finishes Taylor. Your Orioles look good in comparison. Yeah, I'm going to say the A's because uh, they're terrible. They're absolutely going into a sinkhole right now, and they're expected to trade Frankie Montas sometime before the trade deadline. He might be the best pitcher who changes hands. And I, I would say this, like the Orioles have set themselves up so well. I, I get a lot of you know feedback from you know some Orioles fans who are like, hey, we're going to be 15 wins better than last year. And I'm like, dude. Like, they're going to probably lose, like, 92-plus games. In most organizations, that's considered to be a bad year. So, <laughs> it kind of set up this low bar. Yeah, the bar is definitely very low. We're looking for marginal improvement here. Uh, I would go with the Nationals for who's going to finish with the worst really? record. But yeah, uh, you're right. I've got a good, I've got a good uh, tweet here from Steve Maluski. He works for uh, Masson after the O's uh, split that four-game series with Toronto. Um, on an eight-game road trip, they're now twenty-eight and thirty-seven. They've won four of their last six. Are fourteen of fourteen and thirteen in the last twenty-seven. They wow. are nine and seven in the last sixteen versus the LEs. Tyler Wells, he had a good game last night, and they're twenty-two and twenty-three in the last forty-five games. So, you know, a, t- a tiny shred of optimism, Buster. It's yeah. not all bad. And Alex Cora, when I was at Fenway Park a couple of weeks ago, he was talking about how the Orioles' pitching is getting better. But uh, uh, you know, as you and I have talked about with this issue going on with their ownership, the big overriding question is, will that affect how much they spend? Because that's what's going to have to come next. You have all these older players on the current roster. They're going to have to replace all those guys. Will they spend money and grow the payroll as they support this group of prospects graduating into the big leagues? Sign the lease, Angelo's family. Sign that lease on Camden Yards, and we'll get off your back. Thanks for writing in, everyone. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter while you're watching games this weekend. That's it for today. That's it for this week. My thanks to Ravi, Jess, Hembo, Sarah, and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day.